Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Fatima Bhutto on her latest novel, The Runaways. Fatima Bhutto was born in Kabul, Afghanistan. She also grew up in Syria and Pakistan. She is the author of four previous books, most recently the highly acclaimed The Shadow of the Crescent Moon, which was long-listed in 2014 for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction. And Fatima's latest book, The Runaways, we're going to talk about today. Fatima, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. Could you tell me how you would describe The Runaways, first of all? Well, it's a book about radicalism, but more specifically, it's a book about what the West doesn't understand about radicalism and the radicalized. And I know it's a heavy subject, but it's to me, The Runaways is not just about the terror of our times, but also the joys and the anxieties and and the sorrows too. It's about what young people and what they go through growing up, basically, which is universal. Yeah, I think it's about a generation growing up in the shadow of the war on terror, a generation that really hasn't known any other way, that is constantly surveilled and constantly excluded and constantly forced to prove their credentials for belonging. So the book has three main protagonists. There's lots of other characters which we'll also talk about, but three main protagonists. So before we go through those characters in turn, tell me why you chose to tell it from that multiple character perspective. Mm. Well, it it began actually with Monty and Sunny. It began with the idea of these two young men thrown together in circumstances that they could no longer influence or control. And around them grew the rest of the cast, I guess. Layla, who was a very ghostly figure, Anita Rose and her story, including Osama, her elderly Marxist neighbour. So they they kind of snuck up on me, actually. Um, so Anita Rose is, is the first person I want to talk about. Tell us something about her. Who is she? Anita Rose is a young girl who lives in Machar Colony in Karachi, which is one of the largest slums. And she's an incredibly bright girl who wants to do something with her life, who wants to be stronger, who wants to be seen and who wants to be free. And that Machar Colony, tell us something about that area of Karachi, what's it like? Well, Karachi is an interesting place because it's a city that absorbs everyone and that has the capacity for everyone, but that doesn't mean that it treats everyone fairly or humanely. So Machar Colony is a kind of informal settlement in a lot of ways because a lot of the homes have grown up haphazardly 
There's a lot of fishermen who live in Machar Colony, a lot of people working, ordinary jobs, uh, Patans, Sindhis, Mohajirs, different ethnicities. And I think that's where you go if you want to see Karachi. You don't go to the part of Karachi that's shopping malls or McDonald's that could look like anywhere else on earth. You go to see people who live in communities um, that look after them and, and that care for them. And as we go and talk about these characters, we'll, we'll talk about the individual cases of how they become radicalised in the book. And, and Anita Rose's mother, Zenobia, so mm-hmm. she works. Mm-hmm. Tell us what she does. She works for a, a rich family. Well, she's a Malishwali, which means that she's um, a massage woman and she gets called round to the houses of these rich women to massage their tired bodies. And um, she travels by herself. She carries a little sack of oils, you know, a mustard oil, almond oil. And she sometimes has to take her two children with her because she has nowhere else to leave them if she's working. And Anita's sections include not only her mother, but her brother and how the two of them respond in different ways to having to sit in the courtyards of these grand homes that they're not allowed to enter. And her brother, indeed, he becomes Ezra. He becomes that, that sort of typical idea of someone who is from the slums but wants to get on and he becomes sort of a fixer and works for yeah. groups of shady people doing we don't really know what, doesn't he? Yeah, and Ezra, I think, the Ezra and Anita Rose re- respond very differently. Mm. I think Ezra's reaction, in a way, is almost more understandable. Ezra hates the exclusion. And Ezra is in- profoundly insulted and wounded by the fact that he has to sit on a bench by the gate. But he's not welcomed into these homes, is not spoken to by the people who own these homes. And it produces a particular kind of anger and contempt in him. So this family that Zenobia works for, they live in this area, Clifton, mm-hmm. which is where, when we finally come to, to Monty later mm-hmm. on, is where he comes from as well and indeed it's it's where you live so tell us about this area what it's like well Clifton is an old neighborhood in Karachi it's quite close to the Arabian Sea and unlike the rest of the city which is quite crowded and quite cramped Clifton is you know wide avenues and banyan trees and it's a legacy really of the Raj when the British were in India uh, which Karachi was a part of at that time they divided the city into black towns and white towns and the white towns were the administrators of the Raj lived with their sort of leafy bungalows and and wide avenues. And the black towns were where the natives lived. And those are completely different in structure, in space, in freedom, in light. And unfortunately, Karachi remains, as I think many subcontinental cities do, laid out along those lines till today. Now, you obviously spend a lot of your life in exile in in, in different countries. But in the times when you are in Karachi... You've experienced this, I guess, these, you know, mm-hmm. people that come into the house mm-hmm. and work in, in the way that Anita Rose's family does. Well, I was very lucky growing up in Karachi because of my father, who was a politician. He was a member of parliament um, before he was killed. And he took me, my grandmother took me, and I traveled a lot with my family into not just parts of the country that I really wouldn't have seen otherwise, but also into people's homes and was welcomed into people's homes and stayed in people's homes. And it it gave me this incredible exposure and it created in me a constant feeling of being unsettled in my own environment because I knew how, well, how unfair it was. 
So next door to Anita Rose's house is this mm. lives this old man, Asama, who, you know, at first seems a little bit mysterious and a bit of a you know, a bit of a sort of shut in. Mm-hmm. Um and she gradually gets to know him because her mother is constantly asking her to go and yes. you know, borrow things. I say <laughs> yeah. borrow with inverted commas from Asama for the household. And he, he gradually introduces Anita Rose to both poetry, I do poetry, yes. and Marxism. Yeah. Um, he seems to be, a, you know, a man. He was someone of some importance at some at some point in the past. And I wanted to talk a bit about Osama because I thought, you know, first of all, you're an activist, and you know, he seems the character in the book that perhaps most represents your own politics. But I'd also say perhaps mm-hmm. your father as well. I can mm-hmm. see your father in Osama. Would that be accurate? Well, I think the sort of dreams of Osama are the dreams that I remember being passed down from my father. You know, my father belonged to this generation of Pakistanis that experienced something beautiful and something hopeful. And the possibility of what was to come was exciting. It's a very different generation than my own, which has grown up in the shadow of dictatorships and corruption and war. And and so Osama has that idealism. And I think Anita Rose, Anita Rose, you know, we spoke about her brother earlier. She does begin with that idealism, I think, um, a sense that the world can hold these many different cities in one, that you might move between them and that you might be given permission to break out every once in a while. But Osama, at the point that we meet him in the story, mm. he's, I mean, that's all in the past. Yes. He, he sees himself, I guess, as something as a failure. I think he's a bit of a broken man. I think he's a broken man. He's alone. Um, he's been left alone. You don't really ever know why his family has left him. But you see that it's a sorrow that sort of trails behind him. And he doesn't have a nostalgia for his better times. You know, we have a a brief moment in the book where he takes Anita to the press club, the Karachi press club, because they've got no electricity. And he knows this is a place he can go and have a cup of tea and they can watch TV. And everybody knows him there. And everybody knows him and everybody respects him. And Anita wonders, why hasn't he brought me here before? And I think there's something profoundly decent about Osama. And that's why he doesn't. He doesn't live on old glories because... I think he believes in the future. He believes that there can be more and more hope and more beauty to come. Can you tell us something, just as an aside, about Faiz? I mean, Faiz, mm. the early poet that he introduces yes. Anita to. He's not someone I've come across before. Faiz Ahmed Faiz is, is an incredible Pakistani poet. And he he was a very political poet as well. And he wrote a poem called Hamdekinge, which means we will see. And it's an anthem of resistance. And he wrote it at really the height of General Ziaul Haq's um, dictatorship in Pakistan. And Ziaul Haq was a CIA-backed dictator. He brutalized the country. You know, he, he instituted things like amputations as the punishment for theft. And so for Fez to write Hamdekinge was about the fall of a dictator and about really the nightmare that he must face eventually when the people rise up is not just an act of rebellion, but it's it's really, um, it's something so much more profound. You know, there's another great story from Pakistan. There was a singer called Iqbal Banu who sang Hamdekinge in Lahore at the height of Zia's repression to a crowd of, I mean, a massive crowd of people and was forever banned from appearing on television, was forever banned from giving concerts. But that's the sort of legacy we have of poets in places like Pakistan. They're not just um, romantic um, dreamers. They're really fighters, too. So Anita becomes radicalised in the book. 
book, we won't talk about where that goes, but I wanted to talk about that method of her radicalisation, which is, uh-huh. you know, through, first of all, disenchantment at seeing her mother's humiliation with this rich family, mm-hmm. and then, you know, the Marxism. So mm-hmm. she basically takes what perhaps now would be a an old-fashioned path to radicalism, which is that of leftism. Yes. Well, I think, you know, we've had such a suffocation in terms of the discussion on radicalism. There's this sort of awful industry in the West that has swept in and told us that radicalism is about religion. It's about one religion and it's about these people from this place and this is what they look like. And of course, that's not only utterly false, but it's dangerously misleading. And you're right, radicalism at some point was not identified with religion. It was identified with leftist politics or radical Marxist politics. And I think ultimately, anytime we talk about radicalism, we have to talk about things like pain, like suffering, like poverty, like inequality. And that's what I wanted to do with a lot of the characters in the book, to show that what brings them to this this terrifying point actually could happen to anyone, almost. Fatima, I want to move us on to the next character, Monty. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the one that most closely resembles your own mm-hmm. background. Tell us where he comes from. So Monty is the only son of this very wealthy property developer. And he lives in Karachi, uh, in the white town, not the black town, as the Raj called it. But I think we could probably still use those words. And his family summers in London. They've got a flat near Harrods. And he really has a life of almost no needs. He has everything he wants. And Monty meets a woman called Layla in his last year of high school at the American school in Karachi and falls dangerously and stupidly in love with her. You uh, went to that school as well. Tell me what the American school in Karachi is like. Yeah, I tried to change the name of the school for the book. I sort of switched <laughs> the words around because it's it's not exactly the school. But yes, I did go to the American school, which was a wonderful place to learn, it was a great place to be a student because we were allowed a lot of questioning. We were allowed a kind of almost independence that, you know, I don't see a lot of young people having at school. But at the same time, it was a very elite school. You're surrounded by incredibly high walls. Um, You've got all this space and there's only really, you know, 300 of you. And it had different phases, I guess. So when I started at school there, it was this sheltered little bubble. But again, we were allowed to ask these questions. We were allowed to sort of think beyond our, our borders. And by the time I graduated in 2000. You know, the world had started to change. Terrorism had started to show itself. There were already airstrikes against Afghanistan under Bill Clinton's government. And then it became a really strange place. Then it became a weird place because it was sort of protecting you from your own country. Mm. Yeah, the whole concept of of, of American yeah. suddenly takes on a different tenor to the, the vast majority of the Pakistani population, I guess, the idea of the, you know, the great Satan. Yeah, and not only that, but I think that the people who were willing to come and teach in a place like Karachi, which was then beginning to become dangerous... Mm-hmm were not really people who knew very much about it. And so we had professors who spoke about the country they were in. I mean, our country in disparaging ways. I mean, and the mistake was theirs because they'd sort of raised us to be (laughs) brutal in confrontation. So we did. We would say, how can you say that? And that's completely racist and offensive. 
But it it did become a, a strange and unusual place to be, especially at that time. And that's exactly what Layla does. She's she's combative with the professors. Exactly. So Layla, you know, the the American school when I started out used to have this really odd rule where they had one third Pakistanis, one third Americans, and then one third international. And then towards the end, they had to change it because well, there were no more internationals or or Americans. So Layla comes in really under this new opening for students, and Layla isn't impressed by the walls and Leila isn't impressed by this kind of, I don't know, a foreign view of her own country. And she, she does ask a lot of uncomfortable questions. And for someone like Monty, who really never has asked those questions, she's fascinating. Now, we can't really talk too much about Leila because she is central to the, to the plot mm-hmm. of the novel. But at the same time, she does... I want to talk about how she becomes a symbol, really. You know, yeah. you use her to, to show the idea of how, like, you know, Monty basically becomes radicalised because yeah. he's sort of seduced into it by yeah. by Layla. And it, it, that sort of takes on, a, I think, a, a sort of bigger symbolism in the story. Yeah, I think what we also miss when we talk about radicalism in the West is we miss, in fact, how incredibly modern the recruitment is. It doesn't say, oh, leave your lives in England and in Paris and come and sit in a cave. It actually has a very modern argument, which is seductive, which is come and be in a place that's anti-national. It's anti-national because we have no borders. So you have free movement within this community, within this sort of kingdom or caliphate. And not only do you have mobility and access and belonging, but you also have power. And that power means the conversation is held on your terms, the language is yours, the force is yours, the authority is yours. And Leila is certainly a part of that. And I think that's what draws a lot of young people or what drew a lot of young people to these places. It feels counterintuitive to a lot of us, I think, to ask why would someone leave a home in Alabama or in Portsmouth and go out to Mosul? And I think it's because of those seductive qualities. It's funny you mentioned Alabama. I wanted to talk about uh, Monty's mother mm. starts to also, in a sort of more gentle way, become radicalised. And, and she becomes obsessed with this TV, terrible TV <laughs> evangelist, who's, you know, always soliciting money yeah. from his people. And, and this is, you know, he's an Islamic evangelist. Yeah. But exactly like, you know, one of these terrible sort of Southern Baptist guys that, <laughs> yeah. that we imagine when we think of a sort of TV Evangelist. So yeah. is that is that something that happens? Yes, I mean that's almost a real character, the the TV evangelist who Monty's mother becomes enthralled by. It does happen, and I think you know I think there is a there is a divide generationally when we talk about people who who fall very quickly and very deeply into a religious sway, which is almost cult like. I think an elder generation like Monty's mother is lonely and wants answers for a world that they don't have answers to. And, you know, these evangelists who come by and, you know, will will give them advice in return for cash and, you know, events, you know, that they want to be hosted in. I think that's an older generation, whereas Monty's generation or Sonny's or any of their generation, it comes with this millennial aspect of fame, you know, of being religious for an audience of followers, for being followed for your beliefs, being liked for your beliefs, going viral. And I think they both exist. And it's really interesting to see in a place like Pakistan, at least, how each of them 
gathers followers. Each of those two different methods gather followers. And Monty, he's in the same way as Anita Rose. He's sort of disenchanted with the, you know, the facile trappings of, yeah. you know, modernity. Yeah. But obviously coming at it from the opposite end of the <laughs> of the financial spectrum. Yes, exactly. I think Monty's someone who wants for nothing and who has, you know, imported food for dinner if he feels like it, who does all his shopping abroad. I think Monty understands that there's something profoundly empty in that. What's his purpose and all that? He doesn't know. And I think, I think to Monty's credit, he wants to find out. He just takes the wrong path. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Fatima Bhutto and we're talking about her latest novel, The Runaways. So suddenly then, our final protagonist, he's grown up in the UK mm-hmm. um, as a sort of second generation immigrant. His father came over from India mm-hmm. and we'll talk about his, his father in a moment. Sonny's path, I think, follows one we're more familiar with in the UK because mm-hmm. it's, it's basically ripped from yeah. the headlines <laughs> and that's something we could also yeah. talk about in a minute perhaps. But first of all, so he grows up in Portsmouth as a, you know, as I said, a, a second generation immigrant. And I was really struck by how well you described towns like Portsmouth I grew up in in Leicester, which is a town of a similar a similar size. You know, also has a massive diaspora from the uh, subcontinent. But mm-hmm. um, tell me how you, I just want to know how you how you researched <laughs> the sights and sounds and smells of of, of Portsmouth. Portsmouth. <laughs> 
Well, Sunny was Sunny is really my favorite character, and I spent the most time building Sunny and thinking about Sunny and being anxious about and for Sunny. And so Portsmouth, I had had so many different layers of the research to Portsmouth. I had the kind of finding out and reading and watching videos. And then I had a strange detour where I learned all this slang (laughs) from Portsmouth and put all of it in the book and then took all of it out because I thought, no, come on, you can't, can't go too far. And and learning about the neighborhoods and trying to understand what happens in the local paper and trying to follow the football team. I did all of that. But I think really what what I understood the most about Sunny, which made everything else natural, was I understood his loneliness and his his feeling that he didn't belong anywhere. And actually not really knowing where he wanted to belong either. Suleiman, his father, who has taken this, you know, typical come over from India and, you know, taken a brave move of leaving everything he knows and coming to a, you know, a cold, distant, hostile island and starting a life, which is is an incredibly brave thing to do. But at this point, he, again, is looking back on his life with disappointment, I think. Yes, I think Suleiman Jamil, Sunny's father, really breaks his life to migrate to England. And he's that generation that comes over you know, young and able to do anything and willing to do anything. And he does it because he imagines that there's a great future that awaits him here. But in the end, it's a shock. Um, The experience of being a migrant, the experience of being displaced, and the knowledge that the place you imagined with all these riches and all this possibility is not really open to you. You're kept outside it. And no matter how hard you try to learn the right ways to be, the right ways to talk, the right ways to fit in, they still don't let you in. And I think he's disappointed. But in his disappointment, he just tries harder. And that's something almost embarrassing for his son. That's something his son is is a little mortified by because he doesn't understand why his father left a place where he actually could have been something for Portsmouth. Sonny's cousin Oz is mm-hmm. the is the person that radicalizes him. And again, this is a this is a, a sort of pattern that we see often in the UK. Tell us the sort of tactics that somebody like Oz would use to again seduce somebody mm-hmm. like Sonny. Yeah. I think I think Sonny is glamoured by Oz. Oz is his elder cousin who who goes away mysteriously. And he claims to have gone to a refugee camp. But nobody actually has any evidence that he was in a refugee camp. Nobody really has any evidence what Oz did when he was away. But he comes back really confident and really assured. And he knows this new language and these new phrases borrowed from a religion that he claims now to represent. And he starts to indoctrinate Sunny. He starts to tell him that Britain isn't a place for men like them. They're just wasted here. There's another place where men like them could be powerful. And not only powerful, where they could influence communities of men. And Sunny and his loneliness and his wanting believes us to be true. And he follows him. Actually, I was just in Lahore, just on a side note. And I did a reading for the runaways. And somebody came up to me afterwards and said, but I did actually work at a refugee camp. Why did you make Oz? (laughs) And I said, no, 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 he doesn't. That's the whole point of Oz. Oz is a... A charlatan. You know, Oz is someone who moves wherever the political wind blows. So if it suits him, he's a refugee worker. If it suits him, he's a radical. You never really quite know with him. Mild spoilers there, we should, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should just say. Um, the other aspect of, of Sonny is that he's confused by his sexuality as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And something that's not 
really talked about, I don't think, is obviously I can understand the sort of camaraderie of why mm. young men would want to mm. to go away and join, you know, their brothers in a fight somewhere. Mm. But also there's there's a sort of homoeroticism about it as well. Well, I think it's an incredibly difficult time to be anyone. And I think it's an incredibly difficult time to be a man, especially in an environment where the rules have always been so rigid and so strict. Um, What does it mean to be a man with force in the world? What does it mean to be a man who can confront the environment around him? And Sonny deeply struggles with that. I think he, I think the homoeroticism really comes from his, his wanting, his wanting in a particular sense, his longing to be loved and to be respected and to be in a a brotherhood of some kind. And in his, again, and not to give too many spoilers away, but Oz in a way makes him think he might have that when he goes away. He makes him think that this is a band of men that know what it means to fight, to struggle, to be beat down. And yet they're still men. They're not diminished by it. I think that's really appealing to him at the same time as he grapples with the idea of his sexuality and and what it might include and what it might exclude. So, I mean, right now, as we speak in the UK, the country is convulsed with the story of um Shamima Begum the you know one of these so-called ISIS brides yeah. who um you know has been to to Iraq and seen terrible things in some respects is you know pretty unrepentant about yeah. reasons why she why she meant but she's a british citizen mm. and you know now there is this sort of political argument about what to do with her and obviously we're going about this in entirely the wrong way but i just mm-hmm. wondered if you you sort of thought about this idea of how you know how we deal with young people who have had this sort of level of radicalization yeah i think i think shamima begum's case is really fascinating and i think um huda muthana the the american woman who also ran away and now wants to return to america is really interesting she was asked in an interview what would you say to americans what would you say to them and she said i wish i could take it off the internet i wish i could take it all off the internet and to me that was so Fascinating because these and they are young women and they are young men who were born in these countries. They were educated in these countries. They grew up in these countries. And I suspect that part of the reason they left is because they felt there wasn't a future for them in their countries. And now that they've made this grievous error in Shamima Begum's case, at least as far as we know so far, she didn't kill anyone. She didn't hurt anyone. Wasn't a part of propaganda. Whereas Huda Muthana was a part of propaganda. She was a part of inciting people to violence. Now that they've done this awful thing, all their suspicions are confirmed by their countries who've said, well, now we don't want you back. You know, to say to Shamima Begum, you go to Bangladesh, a country she's never even visited, is really quite astounding. It's quite remarkable because it's Britain, not Bangladesh, that has a responsibility in the trajectory of her life and her radicalization. And you mentioned earlier in earlier in an interview and, you know, these two real life young women are obviously, you know, their radicalization has been through, you know, YouTube videos, mm-hmm. Facebook pages and mm-hmm. things. And again, all young people now are dealing with this legacy of how do you live yeah. online? You know, how do you live? You know, how do you go for a job interview when something you might have said in 10 years ago that's still online might come up and whatever yeah. you for this group of people, it just so happens to be yeah. Islamic radicalism. But this is somebody that everybody's dealing with. And I think also the thing where all these different words collide is the, the impulse for fame, 
that this generation has. It doesn't matter whether you're a busker, you know, in Covent Garden or you're a radical in Mosul. You're filming yourself. You're photographing yourself constantly because you want people to know your name. Now, <laughs> you know, why is fame an impulse that we should be encouraging young people to seek out? I don't think it is. I think it's incredibly dangerous. And I think what it does is it destroys a young person's ability to explore the world, to carefully seek out spaces and freedoms and interests, because it, it kind of removes that, doesn't it? It removes your ability to make mistakes, to be redeemed and to have fresh starts. One more question for me and then I'll, I'll get you to read a bit of the noise if you would. As I mentioned in the introduction, you spent a lot of your life in exile and you grew up in both Afghanistan and Syria, two places that, you know, in recent history have been convulsed by Islamic mm -hmm. fundamentalism and destroyed. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what it's like to see from a distance places that you know mm. have that happen. Well, I was very, very young when we left Afghanistan, but I, mm -hmm. I did grow up in Syria and I spent a lot of time in Damascus. And at the time that I was growing up, you know, Syria was a secular country. So when I was growing up in Syria, I didn't know. I mean, I knew I was Muslim, but I didn't know if I was Sunni or Shia. And I remember it wasn't until I went to Pakistan that somebody asked me. I, and I, I didn't know how to answer, actually. I had to go home and ask my father. <laughs> but Syria wasn't a place that you felt you were under a sort of target if you belonged to one group or another religiously. Obviously, it was different if, if you had political leanings. But, you know, I went to school with Armenian Christians. Um, we had Hindus. We had different kinds of Muslims. And it never would have occurred to me that Syria, of all places, would be a kind of laboratory for Islamic fundamentalism. That I, I never would have guessed. So it's it's heartbreaking. And at the same time, my experience in Pakistan, where we've seen it grow and we've seen it flare up, is interesting because we've also seen it die down and we've also seen people refuse to be afraid and defend a version of their religion that they believe isn't represented. And so I have hope in Pakistan, which maybe 10 years ago I might have told you I, I didn't have that much. I think things are changing. I think, I think this generation of Pakistanis, this young generation coming up, understands that you can be many things at once. And they're negotiating that and I think they're doing it well, actually. And that's a positive point for us to end on then. So if I can get you to um, read yes. a bit. So this is a section about Anita Rose. And uh, she's the young girl who lives in Machar Colony. And at this point in the story, she goes to a local school. And she's about, well, I don't know actually how old she is. She's a young, young girl at this stage. So it's early in her story. At night, Anita draped her mother's heavy black chadar over her shoulders, crept out of the house and walked to the nearby hotel and sat on the corner of the Chaiwala's block, listening to the way the actresses on TV spoke. She heard a talk show host interview one of the ladies from one of her favourite serials. It's such a blessing, you know, Sheila Kazmi said in English that sounded like velvet felt against the skin, smooth and luxurious and unaffordable to be able to follow my dreams and do what I love. Until Anita could stand it, until her eyes became lazy with sleep, she sat on the corner of the street, cockroaches scurrying in and out of the garbage, tickling her feet, and wrote down all the words the actress said in her shiny red notebook. She repeated her favourite lines to herself as she walked through the alleyways piled high with rotting banana peel and mulch, lit only by the milky white of the distant stars, committing the words to memory before she went to sleep. 
What's a prostitute's daughter like you doing with a fancy notebook like this? Mira taunted Anita Rose at school. Anita didn't answer her. She had learned a long time ago to ignore the girls who hounded her. Mira's mother was actually a prostitute. Anita had seen her standing in the window of their home, wearing only a choli, pressing her breasts against the metal bars and calling down to the men in rickshaws and scooters below. It was why Mira hated Anita, why she teased her and bullied her, because she knew Anita's mother never sold her body, even though the Josephs were infinitely poorer than her mother with the choli, standing at the window grills. Leave it, Anita said. She had filled three pages already, selecting only the most precious words. She had even started watching the news, where she learnt an entirely new vocabulary. Corruption, fraud, hypocrite, fundamentalist, Zionist. She could not afford to lose the notebook now. Conspiracy. She had learnt that only yesterday. Mira's eyes flickered with doubt as Anita refused to relinquish the notebook, and Anita saw her panic in front of the other girls. If Anita defeated this one bully, the rest would see Mira for what she truly was, an empty threat, diffused of all her power. Anita saw it, all that pride and anxiety in the way Mira's eyes swelled and then contracted. But before Anita understood that she would never have the chance to extract any kind of retribution, the game was already so skewed against her, Mira sank her ragged fingernails into the veins of Anita's hands. Anita tried to release herself from Mira's grip, but Mira only dug in harder until her nails had left scratching of demi-loons, burning into the back of Anita's hand. But she had not let Mira see how much she had hurt her. Anita would not give those girls the pleasure of knowing how their cruelty had marked her. She walked back home from school with her head held high, as though she were carrying a book on the centre of her crown. As she walked stopping only to pet the stray dogs resting in the shade of the billowing banyan trees, Anita bit her lip to keep the tears from falling down her face. So I've been talking to Fatima Bhutto. We've been talking about her latest novel, The Runaways, which is out now in the UK from Penguin. Fatima, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it. Thank you for having me on the podcast. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.